Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. We take the advance of science as a given, but how does science really work? This month, Jeremy Baumberg sheds light on a cutthroat and tightly tensioned enterprise that even scientists don't often fully understand. So, good evening. Um, I'm delighted to be here. So, I'm, I'm, you know, cognizant of the fact that the Royal Institution is very historic, and 200 years ago, uh, probably what we would have done is we'd have had something maybe around the frontier, maybe a body, and we'd have been dissecting it, and I'd have been explaining what I was dissecting. So, actually, I'm going to try and do something a bit similar to that today, which is I'm going to try and take the body of science, but we're going to anaesthetize it, we're not going to actually kill it, uh, and really try and understand uh, how, how it really works. So I'm going to try and dissect it a little bit in a very uh, gentle manner. Um, and I became interested in this about five years ago, so I'm a scientist, I hope you'll get a sense of that. I actually uh, I worked for about 10 years in industry before I in the States and uh, uh, in Japan and in the UK, and before I got sort of uh, lured back into academia. So I've seen different sides of science, and I started to get, I mean, people, scientists say things like, oh, it's terrible, I'm going to a conference in Hawaii. Well, why is it so terrible? Oh, I've got to travel. Well, why do you go? Oh, I have to go. Well, why do you have to go? And, and you start to talk to scientists reflecting about how they do science, and actually, you start to find that they can't really articulate why they do certain things. We do things as, science, as scientists in a particular way, but more often than not, nobody makes us do it this way. It's the way that we decided to do it, and yet everybody complains about it. So that's one of the reasons that I started to, talk, to look at this. And the other reason was that um, when, when people think, particularly the general public, think about scientists, they're often fed this idea of a brilliant person sitting in an office thinking. And then, you know, ideas come, and then they go and do something, and magic sort of happens. And then there's a sort of a long seg, and then somehow magic turns into technology. And we're never really clear on how that process works. And much of science doesn't actually work like that at all. So, uh, you know, I tried to write a book that's actually like the anti-science book a little bit. And that's what I'm going to talk about this evening, which I hope should be interesting in different ways. So I think we'll, we'll start with this, actually. Technology. So we're all carrying around things that have you know, billions of components. I said, when I worked at Hitachi, we actually had chips already then, 20 years ago, that had more uh, transistors on them than there were people on the planet. And they all worked. So it's sort of an amazing thing. We still walk around expecting this. but uh, So we sort, of, we sort of understand a little bit where technology comes from. So for instance, if I look at my phone, then the screen on my phone, it uses organic... LEDs now. So where did that come from? Well, in fact, in the 1850s, people were making molecules that emitted light. So polyaniline, a typical one, was in Germany in the uh, 1850s. But it was not until about 1950s that people started to try and zap it, put electrical currents across it, and found that also electrical currents got it to, to emit light. And then there was a long sequence of, of progress. Kodak got into it and then decided not to go any further, hence the company eventually collapsed. Even my colleagues in the Cavendish lab made some major advances just at the start of the 90s, finding a class of polymer molecules which emit light very efficiently, and those are now the screens of mobile phones. Or we might look at the transistors here. So a lot of those transistors in the banks there, they're storing information. And we learned 
well, where did that come from? Actually, it came from people understanding that you could look at the flow of electrons in special materials called semiconductors, and when you put a chunk of metal on the top, just isolated from it, and charged it up, it stopped the electrons moving underneath. So you could store information whether you charged up this little bit of metal or not. That's the idea. People started to understand how that worked, and it turned eventually into technology, which just got smaller and smaller. Um, then, e even things like the um, accelerometer in our phone. I, it knows I'm shaking it around, even though it's off. Uh, where did that come from? So, uh, there were scientists in the States, and actually in Bell Labs, but they were doing fundamental physics. They took pieces of germanium, which is, it sort of trans, you know, conducts electricity, but not very well. And they were looking at what happened when you bent it. They'd started to grow nice crystals. And they tried to understand what happens when you bend it, and they found it impeded the flow of electrical current. And that's essentially the basis we now have for making accelerometers. We can watch something vibrate as the electrical current through a piece of silicon now changes. So very fundamental science that gets used in technology. Or um, even things like Wi-Fi. We take it for granted that we don't have to plug everything in. But actually, the Wi-Fi is only possible because uh, radio astronomers were trying to work out how they could deal with this vast radio, um, the, the spectrum of radio waves and listen on different frequencies to do um, radio astronomy, looking out at, at gal galaxies. And they came up with some very nice mathematical techniques which are absolutely essential for all of Wi-Fi. So they were patented it's in Australia, this breakthrough, and they make enormous amounts of money out of it now. So I think we're very clear where technology comes from. Technology comes from science, underpinning it in very unusual ways. We can't predict uh, which bits of science are going to give us important technology 50 years down the line. That's one of the interesting messages from all that. But then we have to ask, but where does science come from? And that's what I'm really trying to get at today. So where, where does science come from? So this is, this is supposed to remind us that actually um, when we see something in nature, we don't know if this is a problem or not. We, see, we, we, we have evidence. So that's the, the challenge I'm going to ask for you. Uh, how do we know that science is in a good state? We actually rely on it all the time for creating new gadgets, new medical advances. Um, and, and we all pay for it. So, you know, we all pay for it. So you pay your taxes. You pay when you give money to charities, because generally it's funding research. You pay whenever you buy a product, because there's some component of whatever you're buying that goes back into the R&D for that product. So we're all paying for it. So you assume like it, it works well. Surely it's working well. It's not a given. How, how is it evolving? Um, so one of the things that I found as I was starting to try and think about ways to look at the whole system of science was to start looking at it as an e ecosystem. Uh, is it in good shape? How do we know? How do we ask and answer that question? So there are different ways we can come at it. Um, so one of the first things is actually uh, to try and understand what sort of scientists we have and how many there are. So actually I often ask, does anybody know how many scientists there are in the world? Shout out a number. Any idea? I mean, I often ask scientists this question, and they go, yeah, oh, and they go like, huh. 10 million. That's a good number. Two billion. <laughs> Two billion is a very good answer. I like the answer. So, so one of the things I always feel is that people are born scientists. So actually, everybody, well, everybody under a certain age remains a scientist until it's educated out of them a lot of the time. But we're often born with that curiosity about science. How does it work? How does it? It's obviously very useful for our survival. So, um, 
But just the number of scientists, and you know, the number of, how many physicists are there in the world, or chemists, or material scientists? So it's really not, not, not very well known. There's another thing about science, which is often we have, you know, this is an idea that's often in the public imagination about science. So science is often about asking a question that's fundamental about the world. What is the world made of? We know, you know this is made of molecules, which is made of atoms. We know the particles inside the atoms of protons, neutrons, and electrons. We now know what's inside those, but what's inside those? You know, where does it all start? So this is part of the LHC that some of my colleagues work on. So they're what I would call simplifiers. They take something in the world, and they try and dig inside it and see how, how does that work? Other people, people might be looking at, how does a cell work? You know, we, don't understand, we don't really understand that at all. We know lots of stuff goes on, but how does it really work? Or how does consciousness happen? Um, how, does, how is the universe made? How, what, how do galaxies form? So these are all sort of what I would call simplifier questions. And that's, that's often what we think scientists do. They ask the question, and they go down that path, and they try and take something apart. Um, so what else is there? Well, the, the other side of... Uh, of, of science is something more like actually what's needed to do it, maybe you see here. So what I would call constructors. So constructors are often, I mean, they, they build something, and then it leads them to ask more questions. So we could go back to this um, here, which was, say, let's take the, the germanium example for the accelerometer. So once you start, you, when you make a bit of germanium, and you try and ask how the current flows, and you, you bend it, and it changes... Well, then you might ask, well, what happens if I now make layers of materials, of different materials? Does that change it? So you start making new things, which don't exist in nature, possibly, and asking more questions of those, and that leads you on to different science. So that's a sort of science where we're building. We, things emerge from that that we have no idea. Uh, we don't expect them. Um, we might say, you know, carbon nanotubes. I don't know if you've heard of these. So very, very thin tubes of carbon, a couple of nanometers across, a few atoms across, 10 atoms around. So they can conduct current. What happens if I bend them? They're a tube now. Turns out the, the way that current goes through that is completely different if I take a solid chunk of material. So what happens is as we learn to construct things in different ways, we can ask more and more questions. We can make cells that operate differently. We can start to build artificial cells. And it's not really about pure science and applied science, which is a, a very historic way of thinking about it. So, and it's not really about science and engineering either. So these people are not doing engineering, they're not building a device. They're exploring the world. They're trying to understand what happens when you make things work in a different way. And it's from the same curiosity, and there are far more of them than there are the simplifiers. So that's one interesting thing. So uh, as far as I can estimate, at least... More than two-thirds of scientists are constructors rather than simplifiers. Of course, it's very difficult to decide, but that's sort of the, the minimum end. So they're, they're creating new science. Now, there's a really strong interaction between all these people. We, we saw the particle accelerator there. So to make that work, you have to make huge magnetic fields. People discovered new sorts of materials which could support big magnetic fields, also new ways of making the currents that produce those magnetic fields. And that enabled new simplifier science, which gave people new ideas for materials so you could do more constructor science. So there's a sort of loop backwards and forwards between these. Uh, and often it takes sort of 10 or 20 years between ideas leak from one field back into another field and then, then return again. And medical science is very much like that. So we need both. We can't, we can't just say science is one or the other. We need both, and we really have to think about it differently to engineering. It's not engineering, it's science. It's a uh, good definition of science. So um, 
we can also try and understand this through the prism of Nobel Prizes, because so I went back and looked at the last 60 years of Nobel Prizes, trying to understand, were the scientists simplifiers or constructors, and how did they think about themselves, and did they think what they were doing was useful at the time, or they just happened to look on it? And the sort of Things you find depends a little bit on the discipline. So, so in physics, uh, we used to give Nobel Prizes about 50 years ago to simplifiers. You know, the structure of the proton, uh, uh, how, how, how a semiconductor works. Um, but, but now, more and more of the prizes go to constructors. We create strange systems where electrons behave in, in quantum ways. They interact with each other in quantum ways. That's not really simplifier science. It emerges from things that we're building corral of atoms that confine electrons. Um, so that's physics. But uh, in other subjects, for instance, in, in chemistry, uh, actually, it's remained about the same over time. Medicine is the same. So what happens there is that uh, you know, whenever you think you're getting somewhere, you open up a new box, and then there's a whole range of new simplifier questions. So it tends to be that simplifiers are more recognized. It's easier to see a breakthrough in simplifier science uh, than in constructor science, which depends on the interaction of many, many people. So that's the first thing to think about um, when, when we think about science. Now, I, I just mentioned what I, you know, I don't know if you've already got. What I do is I do nanoscience. And uh, uh, that's, that, I think, is really a, a very strong example of a constructor science. So we've started uh, from making things, as we got better and better at making things, we, we get make, make them smaller and smaller and smaller. So this is what's called um, top-down reduction in size. And that's what's led to the miniaturization of our phones. You know, it's a mainframe computer from 50 years ago now in our pocket and, and getting more advanced than that all the time. Um, on the other hand, if you like chemistry is the other way around, people have got better and better at building molecules that are more and more complicated. Um, so they're sort of starting to meet in the middle around the area of hundreds to to, to, to tens of thousands of atoms is a middle ground of nanoscience, which is where actually biology works. A lot of the functional machinery of biology that exists, say, around our cell membranes or proteins, which are on that scale and they open and close. They really look like machinery. The more we look at them, the more they appear like tiny machines. So that's what we're trying to do. And the example here is of an ant which can, can hold on to a completely flat sheet of glass and hold 100 times its body weight. Okay, we are so far from being able to do that, it's untrue. So if you just look at the legs and the muscles, the ability to do that, it's, it's astounding. And so that's the sort of thing that I work on. I'm trying to make artificial muscles that actually have anything like the force that uh, these sort of uh, uh, biological systems can do. So I'm, I'm definitely a constructor. So one of the things uh, that I got interested in was... So I, I try to answer this question, how many scientists are there? You can buy the book to find out. Um, but the other thing is, how, are they going up, the number of scientists, or staying about the same, or going down? And how does that compare to the world's population? That was one of the things I became interested in. And it turns out the number of scientists has been increasing at the same rate for actually about 100 years. It shows no sign of changing at all. It's about 4% a year it goes up which doesn't sound so much. The world's population is now only growing by about 0.8% a year. And, and you know, we live in an amazing time where that world population growth is slowing down enormously. 4% um, a year means that the number of scientists doubles every 18 years, which for scientists is actually quite frightening. Um, so the number of people, if you like, I'm competing against is going to double twice in my lifetime. 
So by the end, in my scientific lifetime, well, maybe not. I don't know how long I live. Um, so, and, and so the effect of that, it's hard to maybe imagine. So it's a bit like, you know, imagine doubling the number of people in your book club, say, uh, or your friendship group. It, it leads to a lot of problems. Um, we, we're, we're built for certain sizes of interactions. So you can ask the question, when you double the number of scientists, do you double the amount of science that comes out, that emerges? Um, and... Generally, the answer is difficult to make a quantitative answer, but generally the answer is that's not what really happens because scientists, they want to work on the latest things, so they tend to collect in these bandwagon areas. You know, it's a hot topic. So they'll go there, and that's because they got funded there, and so they'll be interested in that area. It seems dynamic. So they'll be competing against each other. So it gets more and more competitive, science, when you put more people into it. But it's not clear that the science goes, there's more of it, or it goes faster. Because there is this sort of certain amount of time you need to gestate on ideas, for them to bounce between different fields. So, um, in fact, what, what seems to happen is it just gets more frenzied uh, and more competitive, but actually science doesn't, doesn't, doesn't go forward. You know, there aren't amazing new discoveries happening at an ever-increasing rate. Um, so I started then trying to understand how does the science system really work, and I think the metaphor I'm going to try and show you this evening is this idea of an ecosystem. So uh, here's a particular example. You can think about the way we, we get scientists is a bit like the water cycle. So uh, we create, we have rain. So rain is like we're all born with an interest in science, actually. It just falls everywhere over the planet. Uh, and then it collects together, so we, we, we get taught at school. Some of us carry on with science to uh, uh, sixth form and then maybe to university. And so we become like a river. We become an increased flow of science. Uh, and then that science is useful. So we use it to drive mills. It, it powers our, our, our economy. So scientists go into industry. Uh, and then there's some small fraction of scientists who actually go and become teachers themselves, teach in university or research. So the whole cycle, and then we have children, and there are more scientists born. And so there's this cycle. So it, it has a lot of link to that. And we we sustain a world as we're doing that. It grows this whole sort of ecosystem around it. So we can think about some other parts of an analogy that I found really quite fruitful. So for instance, the essential thing for all life on, on Earth, or almost all life on Earth, is the sun. So almost everything that we eat, everything that's produced on Earth is actually a root coming from the sun's light on the surface, photosynthetically creating biomaterials that then we use. So, unfortunately, the equivalent of that is really money. Money makes the science world go round. You can't do without it. So, it's not quite like the sun. It's not quite as constant as the sun. Uh, you know, there are cycles in the solar radiation coming on Earth. There are cycles in, in the money coming into science. But actually, they're not that strong. The scientists will always complain about them. But if you look at funding over time, the direction of funding into science over time has only ever gone up despite what many scientists will tell you. If you look at the overall funding into the science system, it still goes up. It's, it's impressive. Then you can look at other things. So you can have a look at... Um, so, so rain is like people. I tried to talk about that. Then you can say something like, um, actually, you have to be free to do science. It's the idea about ideas are very important and the interaction of ideas with each other. So it's a bit like the soil. You need that completely. Um, 
And nutrients that we all need in trace amounts, well, you need infrastructure to do science. So it might be libraries, it might be labs. All of this is essential. There's a huge amount more here as well. So you can imagine, well, what's the equivalent of climate, which sets, well, it's really sort of science politics. So at the moment, for instance, in the UK, batteries are one of the major things that we're putting money into. Sounds a good idea. It's very important. We all know that batteries, we want better batteries. Uh, and so science politics has taken root, and so people gravitate in that direction where the money is. On the other hand, maybe the weather is a bit more like these bandwagons I was telling you about. You know, there's a particular uh, uh, biosynthetic pathway which looks really interesting, so people will gravitate towards that. A particular habitat might be a sort of institution, right? a certain place that's good at fostering part of the ecosystem, a certain sort of science. Carbon fixing is a bit like knowledge fixing. We actually, we can, we can take this knowledge and it, 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 it um, condense it down into particular areas. Um, there are also some other ideas which I found really interesting. So there's an idea in ecosystems of ecosystem goods and ecosystem services. So an ecosystem good is like having a forest and you cut it down to have the wood to make tables or buildings. That's something you take out of the system. That's the sort of technology we take out of science. From the ecosystem of science, we directly take what I've shown you before. But ecosystem services is more like, well, the forest produces actually the oxygen that we need on a long, over the whole planet. Or it's actually a beautiful place that inspires us when we go walking in it. And that's one of the problems of our society is that we, we forget to value the ecosystem services part of the equation. We, we just privilege goods. But for our society, we need the services. So actually, this is more like when we talk about mathematics and the beauty of mathematics. So we, mathematicians have always had this embarrassment that, you know, or, or actually particle physicists as well. We like beautiful theories, but we're not really allowed to say that. It's not supposed to be a criteria that you do science because it's beautiful. But it comes under more of that, that idea, that it's, it's actually part of the, the system. We should foster it. It's very, very important as well. So... How does the, what, what does the science ecosystem look like? So you'd have thought that it might be, it's the, it's the people who do the science, the science researchers. That's where we normally think about the science. And also the places where they do it. So universities. Uh, there's also things like conferences, huge gatherings of scientists or small workshops of scientists. That's, that's the core bit of science that I think we would all normally think about in science. But it's not just that. That's, I think, uh, one of the key things. Because it's the ecosystems that all the interactions of different parts. So there's a part about translating science. So that might be big industrial labs. Uh, or it might be the whole patent area where we take science knowledge that's looking interesting for technology and we try and protect it so that it's protected for a particular company, but then they can tell everybody else about it. So then that helps our science progress. Those are very important. Or... The sort of web of knowledge we create, well, actually, scientists don't, they don't just talk to each other. What they do is they try and tell stories to each other. They write up stories in little nuggets, which are published in these science journals. That turns out to be very important. And nowadays, that's all electronically accessible. So we can, I can find out easily about any bit of science anywhere in the world. It's an amazing store of our knowledge. So that's part of the ecosystem, too. Then there's this part about people, which is we, we start training people from undergraduates, graduate students, and so on, to fellows. Uh, and also then these big institutions, like this is the Antarctic, um, the UK base on the Antarctic places, or like CERN, where we can do science, institutes. 
And then there's a lot of other people involved. There's a lot of people involved in how do we fund science. Scientists always complain about funding. Um, but it's actually much more difficult to think about where you should spend 100 million pounds than it is trying to ask for 100 million pounds. You can think up reasons to ask, but where should we spend? It's really difficult to do that. So there's lots of people involved in that, in funding organizations, in government, in charities, military, industry. And then one that often doesn't get talked about is actually the media. So science has become more and more interesting to people over time. We know it affects us, but actually just the general interest in science is growing hugely as well. So you hear it on the radio, uh, you read about it, you see on TV or podcasts, um, and there are whole lots of people involved in that aspect. And then finally, there's all of us as well. So we're a little bit outside looking in at this entire ecosystem. So when you start to look at that, you realize that there's an enormous amount of competition in this system at all levels. So scientists compete with each other. That's why I was trying to say, I want to be the first so I can publish. But the, the journals themselves, they're competing against each other. They want to be the most read scientific journal, what we would call the highest impact, publishes the most important things. Uh, or uh, the um, science programs, say, or podcasts, they're competing with each other. The universities, they're competing with each other. There's now ranking of the universities in the world. So they compete very strongly with each other. Different countries compete with each other. Different funders in the same country compete. They want to fund the good science, not the bad science, but which is the best. Uh, so people compete very strongly for fellowships. So all through this system is competition. And then there are lots of interactions. So uh, it really is an ecosystem. There's lots of strong interactions between different bits of it. And part of this is the, the answer to the question that I was posing a bit before, which is why do people say, you know, I'd love to change the system, but it's their system and they can't change it. And it's because there's all these intense interactions and they lock the system. Nobody can choose to do something differently because they'd have to change the whole system, but nobody has control over the whole system. There are some other interesting things here. For instance, uh, if we look at the, the part over here on, on the science we hear about. So all of you, me, me included, I hear about 0.001% of all the science that's being done. It's a tiny, tiny fraction. It feels like a lot sometimes, because you have to read about it every day. Um, who chooses the science that I get to hear about or you get to hear about? I don't know if you worry about that. You should do, because there's a lot you're not hearing about. So what, which bits do you not hear about? Who chooses? Um, and of course, it's partly, so there are people who are very good professionals who are choosing. They're choosing the bit that you're going to read, because the average time that you'll spend on reading any article is seven seconds. Right? And so we have very poor attention spans, all of us. So we get fed what suits our attention spans, which is a seven seconds headline plus a first sentence. And then if you're really lucky, you might get to the next sentence, and so on. So we get given the science that will keep us reading a bit longer, that we want to read about. And generally, it's that we don't have to do any work, and we understand why the science is important. That's why you always read about cancer, because you know about it, and you don't need any introduction to cancer, so you can immediately go into some science. Uh, you read about particle accelerators. The whole series of things, that there's hooks already. They're already, if you like, the introductions are already in your heads. So a science journalist doesn't need to give those. But there is an interesting thing, because there's a very small number of, of people in the media world 
who actually control that. It's like a bottleneck, very small number of people who are controlling what science gets heard about. So we should worry about that. There are all sorts of other strange things in the system. So uh, the number of scientists grows at 4% a year. We can ask, what about conferences? So I talk to all scientists. They all say, oh, there's too many conferences. Yes, I go to many more conferences than I used to. Actually, there's no data, absolutely zero data about it. You can look at things like uh, some of the big conferences, how they've grown over time. So there are some conferences, like uh, the US Chemistry Conference has something like 25,000 people going to it for a week and has carried on growing. It's just massive. Why do I go to a conference? I go to a conference, actually, to accidentally meet somebody I've never met before to have a really interesting conversation about something I knew nothing about and hit it off with them and maybe think about a new idea. That's why I go to a conference. But conferences of 25,000 people are not designed to make that work. It's designed like there are hundreds of parallel sessions. Your scientists are running in between them trying to get to the next talk. I mean, they talk to the people they know because it's like, you know, safe. Uh, we're scared of each other a little bit. But you don't know who to talk to. So we don't think about that. Science is very odd. There's a whole space here where we could really change how we do science that would actually deliver what we want to. And then, so the, the interesting thing is the EU, part of the EU's investment in science, which has been fantastic over the years, has been increasing the amount of funding for going to meetings. That's what they do. They want scientists around Europe to talk to each other. And it's good because they don't duplicate each other's work now. That you can't hide your head in the sand in, in the north of England, and I'm doing my experiment, I don't really care about yours. Um, you're, 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 it's in your face, because you have to talk to other people around Europe. So that's good, but everybody's traveling a lot more. It's a great subsidy for hotels, restaurants, and airlines. So the EU is very happy, that's right. But that budget is huge. I mean, it's an enormous budget. It's, 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 uh, it's been um, like, I think five billion over the last five years, and it keeps on going up. Um, do we know if that's well spent? Should we have more conferences or less conferences? And it's an answer that nobody really has any idea how to... They don't even have the numbers. So actually, I, that's one of the things I'm trying to do on the website is get scientists and people who go to conferences, media, to actually just talk about their experiences and, and try and collect some hard data. So that's something probably because we don't ever rate conferences that at the moment is hard to change. So normally, we'll see in a second that actually uh, you can make sort of a, you know, something, everybody wants to go to one conference because it's the best conference, then the quality of that conference might increase. There might be a reason to, to make it better. But conferences at the moment, we, you know, we don't, we don't do that to conferences, and that's probably what we should do. We should say that that conference should die. Uh, but actually, every time you do that, uh, people find a reason to keep it going because there's more scientists. And they want to have more talks, and, and more scientists also means that, uh, that there are more small conferences that are around your field, and so you don't go to as different a conference as before. So it actually stops the communication of knowledge between disciplines when this happens as well. So there are some unforeseen consequences of that. Another consequence that many scientists are aware of and have really no idea what to do with is the fact that the amount of knowledge that's generated is just increasing ter terrifyingly. So there are 22,000 new science journals started up every year. That's not the number we have. That's the number that started every year in all disciplines. And, you know, millions and millions of new articles each year. So there's no way scientists can keep track of them. So how do I decide what to read? Even in my field, I can drill it down as small as I want. I still can't read all the things that are being produced in that field. So 
I have to find a way to do that. And that's why there's this pecking order of scientific journals. Because the ones that are really esteemed are really hard to get into. You have to do something major, and we'll talk about how that's decided. But then, if it's in there, then I'll know it's actually major, so it's worth reading. And so there's a fact that there's a pecking order of journals. People want to do away with that. They'd say, well, maybe we should just put all the information we generate on the web and let people talk about it. We shouldn't have this, this, you know, this uh, journals like Nature, which is the one that's most difficult to get into. Um, but actually, I need that. I need that to help me sort this morass of information. So that's the difficulty. We, we, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. And scientists are generally paid not really in money. We have a job. But actually, we're paid in esteem. So if you work in an industry, when I worked in an industry, I did not tell everybody the secret thing that I was doing that was going to make the company a lot of money. We kept it back in the company. If it was a clever technique, we just we didn't tell people about it. And that's how companies survive. And although you think of companies as being very competitive, they're nothing compared to academia. Because in academic research, to get any rewards, you have to give away all your knowledge, all of it. So you give it away to everybody, and then they give you esteem back. Right? And it's really good for society. It's a bargain, like a Faustian bargain we, we, we got into. It's a, it's a very good deal for society. It means that knowledge is really transferred around. I can find out about it uh, relatively easily. Um, but, but the downside is this you know, huge competition uh, that then emerges because to get the esteem, I have to publish before you and get into a higher-impact journal. So we, we, you know, we, we, we make people unhappy, but then at least it helps sort this, this problem of the mountain of information. So we actually have to find uh, some other ways to deal with this, I would argue. Um, it's interesting that when I do a search for scientific information, it's not very different for you doing a search for scientific information. It's basically something a bit like Google. And so, as it's always in Google, you see the first page, and then there's 23,000 other pages, right? which you probably don't look at. Um, but of course, in science, you know, the most important information is probably buried somewhere on the 13,000th page. So we don't actually have very good tools for understanding this web of knowledge that we've created. We have to figure out how we're going to do a better job at that. So, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about how the science um, publishing system works because there's some very peculiar things that have emerged from it as well. So the way it happens, if I want to, if I, if I, somebody gives me some money to do science, I hope, and I'm doing something, and then I have a nice, interesting result that I think, ah, I can tell a story for this that will be really interesting to, for people. So we don't just tell what we've done because it's actually very boring. Uh, and nobody really gets the information. You actually have to make it into something that really is a story. That, that's, how we, that's how we learn, really, through stories. So then I write it up in some way, and I send it to a journal, and I make a decision. Well, I want to send it to the highest impact, because that's going to reflect well on me. You'll see why in a minute. And so I send it to the highest impact journal, and they send it to a set of people in a field who judge, and they complain, and then there's a discussion through the journal about whether I should improve it. And they'll maybe say, oh, it's... It's interesting, but not that interesting. So go away. Go to a lower journal. So it sort of sinks down until it finds its level for the community. It might be fantastic, but there's just nobody alive yet who really appreciates it. And that, happens, that actually happens a lot. The most cited papers are often not in the best journals. The very first one, because there was no people working on it at the time. It was the first. So it got you know, lower down, and then everybody realized, actually, that's major, and it, and it becomes up. So the, being first is very bad. Being second is good, um, sometimes. 
So, so then eventually it gets published. And the thing is that when I publish my paper, I have to link it to all the work that was done before so that people can see what the advance is specifically. If you're like, this is what's known already, and I've done a bit more than that. And link, linking it together is important. So every time I make a link formally, you can see which paper I've referred to. It's called a citation. So that author accrues now a little bit of extra veneration. We count the number of citations. Some people will look it up every day. I know them. It's terrifying. And it goes up daily, you know. Um, so... Uh, and then the paper I publish will get new citations to it so I can see how interesting this paper was really. And the journal, which has published a set of papers, also can see how its papers are being referred to and we can actually generate a number from it. So we can get a number called the citation impact factor of the journal and also each scientist has a, has a, a citation number. So not just a total number, but actually something called an H number, which is... It's a statistical way of doing it. It gets harder and harder to get a higher H number. That's the thing about it. I mean, naturally, as you get older, more people cite your papers. But basically, it's a very hard thing to game. That's an interesting system. It means that so then you can, you can measure yourself. You know, where, where do I sit in the tens of millions of scientists that we are here? And where, do, where does each journal sit? So by and large, it's, it's sort of stable, though it's not a very nice system because it creates this intense competition here. However, the really interesting thing about it is I said that scientists were paid in esteem. And until about 15 years ago, it really was just, you know, if I wanted a promotion, then somebody would ask some people around the world, you know, how good is Baumberg? You know, is he, well, he's middling, not really yet. Maybe when he's older. Um, so it was that sort of network. But that's not what happens now. Now, we can all be measured by an individual number. And what's really happened is that this has taken over from the idea of a community esteem. It's harder because if I have 100 people wanted to come and work with me, how am I going to read 100 you know, of their work and get letters from the referees? I can't possibly do that. So I have to filter them somehow. So paradoxically, globalization, opening up of science, has created some problems for us. So more people can apply for the same job. And I'm not finding it any easier to decide. I just have a bigger problem. So we have to use metrics more. So this creates a really um, difficult problem. So actually, this is a Bitcoin. So I'd contend that scientists accidentally created the world's first Bitcoin about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when we started to be able to electronically cite all the, uh, track all these paper citations. And nowadays, it's really, it's exactly like a Bitcoin because when the paper is published, it's available everywhere and all the citations are immediately calculated and it's a global thing. It's not held on any particular computer anywhere. Everybody has it. It's distributed around the system. So that's like a blockchain. It's verifiable. Nobody can game it. Very hard. So and you take funding in, just like a Bitcoin, and I create, instead of creating numbers from an algorithm, in this time, I'm actually mining real science. So it's sort of a useful thing. But it has all the problems of a currency. So, so it really is. It's exactly a Bitcoin. So the problem about this Bitcoin is, well, there's two things. One of them is it is actually monetizable. So I can take my H factor and I can use it to improve my salary. Or I can use it to get more resources, grants or people. So it's, and it's got different conversion rates in different countries, by the way. So there's a whole lot of interesting ideas around that. Um, so, but, but the other problem with it is that I said that the number of scientists is increasing at 4% a year. So it's not exactly how uh, 
Bitcoin then changes, but Bitcoin essentially is worth less every year. That's called inflation. We're very familiar with what happens in a, in a financial system when we have inflation, you just get poorer. And so it's one of the reasons I think that scientists have felt ever more pressured over the last 15 or 20 years. If you talk to scientists, they say, well, it was so much better before. It didn't have this competition. In fact, what they're responding to is this inflation in, in accrual of esteem. It gets harder and harder, essentially, to get the same amount of esteem. So you work harder. So everybody tries to compete more. So that's a bit of a difficulty. Uh, because we don't really control this as an economic system. And actually, systems that have inflation over a long time, it's good if you have an in, you know, a debt to pay off, but it's not good if you're paid in it because it just erodes away. So it's not completely clear what will happen in that system. I'm not a good enough economist to try and figure what's the end result of this. But the, at the moment, it is a problem for, for science generally. Okay. So we can also think about funding. Uh, often when I talk to people, I mean, you're, you're educated, you, you, you probably have some ideas, but, but when, you, when you talk to, you go to do um, public workshops on, on public focus groups, that, and you ask, well, how do we decide what science gets done? So who decides what science gets done? Normally, the idea is that, well, at least there are some people who know, and they look at the science needs for the country, and they sort of decide what science gets done, and they allocate it around, and that's the science that gets done. It's not, you know, I have an idea and I get some friends to look through my idea and they say, that's a good idea, we'll give you some money to do that, which is what really happens. In, in, a, in, a, in a system that's, that's quite good, a scientists would say it's very defendable, it produces the best science, it's the most efficient way of doing it, but there's nothing strategic really about it. We just do science we think is interesting and likely to go somewhere. So that makes it, it's, it's an interesting problem. So it's actually historic, the way we do science. As I said before, this is what we've inherited, and most scientists can't imagine doing anything different. This is just the way it is. But you could imagine all sorts of different ways of doing funding. So you might gamify funding. So we might decide, when somebody has an idea for, for, for doing some science, and it's above a quality threshold that's this really good piece of science, and we have far too many of these to fund at the moment, what we actually should do is we should have the public decide. So, because that would be great, it'd be great theatre as well. So there's like a game show and you'd present, this is science, that's why I'm trying to do this, and then the public would vote. And then they would have an interest in that piece of science. When you've, when you've got that far involved, you actually want to know what happened. So that would be quite interesting. Scary for my colleagues. Um, but it's not completely clear to me. I mean, you, you could find that people, you know, of course, then scientists would start to hire marketing facilitators who would give the talks, and there'd be a whole industry around it. But it would actually further the interaction and the discussion about what we spend our money on. Could be really good, could be really bad. You might only do certain things like try and cure cancer, which unfortunately needs all these other bits of science to help it. But then people would learn that. Could imagine another way of doing science funding. So this is one where it's a bit like jury service. We don't really have this yet. So uh, you have to go and spend six months uh, in a forest in Japan, and that's where the world science you know, decides in a sort of a, you, you, you become a monk or a nun for, for six months. And then because you're disinterested, you're pulled out of your own background and thinking about, well, you know, how, what should we do in this area? Where should it go? So it could be like that, a meditative sort of way of deciding on science. Or, why are humans deciding on science? They can't read. You know, there's, there's, 
20, 25 million papers a year. I can't possibly read that. But 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 computer could. So we haven't done this yet, but AIs that actually look at this web of knowledge and try and understand where the gaps are in it. This is something that will come. It's, I don't actually, there are not enough big projects in this area, in my view. It's a really open area. Because science has a certain, way, a certain language, a certain way of talking, and it would be quite effective, I think, as a way of trying to identify gaps. And I predict that in, in 10 years' time, I will not be able to apply for funding without the AI actually confirming that this is an interesting funding space. Somebody hasn't done it before, because that's often what happens. Or it actually looks distinguishable and going in, in some different directions. So uh, it's interesting that scientists don't... I mean, there's very little discussion of this sort of thing. Playing with the margins, but not trying to do something radically different. So it's a bit like a Pandora's box. Once you start looking at science as an ecosystem, then um, a lot of questions emerge about how, why do we do science in this way and how we might actually change it. So I, I wrote this book and I just, my plan was, okay, let me write the book and I just want to show the state of science. This is what we're all in, in a system. And if you're young and coming into science, you should be thinking, okay, you know, what could we do about that? But everybody who read the book said, you can't do that. You have to tell us what to do. That's dangerous. Um, so I, I actually did have to try and think about what interventions might actually be productive. And I'll, I'll talk about just a very few of them. I think one of the things that uh, overall has come out to me is that I always had this idea that globalization was a really good thing in science. I mean, for me, it felt like, oh, well, you know, you communicate with people all around the world. There's a diversity of attitudes. Science will prosper the more that we just let knowledge be free. And actually, I'm no longer so sure. Because what happens is that, uh, well, there are a couple of things. One of them is that this massive competition, that the feeling of competition grows, and that has some unforeseen consequences in the system about what science gets done. But there's another one is that the way that we do science, say the way we do funding, becomes more and more the same way everywhere. What happens, everybody chooses the best practice. That actually Britain is very, very efficient in the way that it allocates science funding. We spend very little on administering um, Generally, our, our system is incredibly efficient. It's one of the reasons that I'm in the UK. Um, but now, Europe has copied that, and Korea has copied that. There are different bits of it. So everybody starts to do science funding the same way. It's efficient, you might say, but the problem is, uh, if I go to every country, they tell me, oh, we're, we're going to select just a few areas, and those are the parts that we concentrate on, and you know, we distinguish ourselves. And then I ask them, well, what are you concentrating on? Oh, big data. Everybody's doing big data. You know, there's, everybody chooses exactly the same things. So what happens is what happens in any ecosystem is that you lose diversity. When it becomes big and very connected and, and winner takes all, if you like, so you start to have only certain species in the system. And what happens in that ecosystem is it loses resilience. If it gets pushed in different directions, it's no longer able to, to keep in its position. And that's not so good. For a science system. So I think um, you can see all the time this loss of diversity in the science system. It, it keeps happening. It, basically, everywhere around the world is starting to do science in the same way. Um, you, I, I no longer think that's so good. Another thing that you might worry about is that um, do we have too many scientists? The first time I gave this talk was to a group of young scientists that I work with. And it was this point that they started shouting at me. 
Um, because it feels like, you know, you, you're pulling out the drawbridge. How, you know, you can't do that. So I, I think it's clear that educating just everybody about science is good, some people more, some people less, because it's embedded in everything we do, government, in industries, in everything, science is underpinning. But the number of people who are practicing scientists, it can't keep on going up forever. So our science budgets in all countries go up until a certain point they go flat. And you ask, well, what, what's the point it goes flat? Why does it go flat? What's the right amount of money to spend on science? Nobody has an answer for what the right amount of money to spend on science is. But it goes up to about a couple of percent. And then if you look at what a country spends its money on, it appears as a line item on the first page. And that's my argument about that's where science funding stops because economists or treasury officials then ask, well, what are we getting for that investment? And it's very hard to answer that question. It's a long-term investment in society. We believe it's good, but there's really very little hard evidence the more you look. The people are the best thing that come out of it. So, some of the interventions one might ask are, should we have fewer scientists? I'm not saying we're here yet, but there must be too many scientists. When we're all scientists on the planet, that's probably too many scientists. Um, and, so we have Asia that's been rising. I mean, still the number of scientists goes up in the UK, but Asia, and then Africa will come online in the next 50 years. So, maybe actually we should be redistributing where scientists are around the planet as well. I mean, it's not... Our countries compete with each other, but to tell you the truth, it doesn't matter at all where science is done. You know, if I'm doing it here or somebody's doing it in Korea, in a global sense for science, why, why does it matter? Why does it matter how fast it's done? Could we wait another five years? Um, I think another thing that's definitely coming is this idea of AIs helping in science. There's very little sense of it at the moment, but it's untenable, this saturation of information, and the advances coming in those areas on big data, I think, would be very valuable in actually helping scientists. So, uh, and then I think along with that are an entirely new category of scientists that we've not really had, which are, I mean, really science curators is maybe the best way to describe them. People who are, if you like... We used to have this idea of Occam's razor in science. You wanted to find the very simplest explanation for a phenomenon. But because of this idea of impact, and you actually make a very overblown, complicated explanation now. Hocus pocus, quantum, entanglement, linked to bio. Link, you know. uh, and, um, and, and then it, it, you know, people say, oh, it must be very good, actually. Uh, but I, we, we forget, and actually editors don't ask this, what's the simplest explanation for this phenomenon? And it would be fantastic to have that brought back into science. So that's part of what science creators do, as well as working with the AIs to find, now these areas are really unexplored. This is good territory to work in. So we lack those people at the moment. Um, one of the things that we, we know in our own society about money is that it's a very one-dimensional measure. The good thing about Britain is, uh, when, the, when you meet somebody, the first question is not, how much money do you make? which is actually what happens in America a bit more. Uh, because we, we actually like to be multidimensional in the way that we understand each other. You know, we have different things. But so, the, the problem about this citations, this H metric, is that it's one-dimensional. So we need other ways of measuring, like cooperation or so different ways. And we, we haven't produced those at all at the moment. And then finally, uh, the thing that I'm most uh, happy to encourage is creative anarchy. And that's actually my role in Cambridge as I see it, though not for the people I work with. Um, but actually, it's really important. This is to fight this loss of diversity in the science ecosystem. We have to find ways to do things in a new way. 
And often you can't, I, I never ask for permission, just do it and then let them catch up. And if it's good, then people will use it. If not, it was an experiment and we'll bin that. So I think that's anybody who's involved in science, I'm really encouraging of that or in the science ecosystem. This creative anarchy, we need to try different ways to be doing science, to be funding it. So, for instance, now we have a, um, a lot of money coming from the tech sector of people who are interested in putting money back in, but in curious ways. They want to have control of it. They'll you know, make rockets or get involved in brain research. But it's, it's still interesting and it's still valuable. I used to think, ah, but actually it is very valuable because it's a different way of thinking about it. So um, I hope that's given you a lot to think about. There's a blog called thesciencemonster.com. If you're involved in science in any way, I'd be really interested in you taking the survey there because I'm still trying to collect data. I've got several thousand, but I want to get up to tens of thousands uh, of uh, answers about um, conferences. Uh, but I hope that was interesting, and I'm very happy to take questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Um, so now is the time for questions. So does anybody have a question for Jeremy? Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. It was very exciting, interesting. Uh, quick question, what percent, it, it seems to me you've spent some time looking at statistics about science and scientists. What percent of the greatest, let's say top 100 scientific discoveries were made as a pure accident, you think? Ah, while people question. are looking for something completely unrelated. Great, great question. So uh, it depends on the field a little bit, and it depends on time. So 50 years ago, by and large, most physicists had no idea what they were doing was going to be useful. Uh, but chemists did. They knew a lot more about it. So I think something like 80%, because the chemicals industry started in the 1870s. So already there was an idea that you, and you had an industry to translate to. Um, more recently, then, physicists have had a better idea. That, so there's something about perceived utility, and then there's something about real utility. The interesting thing is now it goes the other way. Now, sometimes people think it's going to be so useful, it's going to be great, and actually lost without trace. Or it got subsumed, more often than it gets subsumed into general science practice and, and goes on. So that's what I, I can say for the moment. There's more statistics in the book. I tried to analyze exactly that. Thank you. Uh, next question from the bottom row in this section. Uh, thank you very much. I, I was struck by your comment about um, science research becoming much more competitive. Mm -hmm. Because if you assume that um, we know much less, or there's much more to be discovered than we know already, I, I suppose I don't understand why? Well, well you're, I suppose you're suggesting that we're focusing on researching things that we know that we don't know rather than things that we don't know that we don't know. Yeah, And therefore, I then say, well, what can be done to encourage us to explore the things that we don't know that we don't yeah. know more? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. But we, and we have to be a bit careful because science, I think, was always competitive. If you look at Newton Leibniz, you know, they were vastly, you know, they hated each other. And uh, they were trying to get there first. So 100% of people in that field were fiercely competitive because there's only two of them who could do it. Um, I think the problem is this, because you increase... It's, it's like uh, the, you know, the attention economy. Because the visibility of individuals goes up, people cluster around those, those themes, so this idea of memes. And um, so this is the idea about bandwagon science. Um, and it's effective also for communities to do that because it, they can leverage funding. 
out of doing it. So you have to fight against those sort of pressures. And you, know, you have to, because there's enormous amounts of science. I mean, there's so much we don't know. Like, like I look in nanoscience, I'm certain I'm going to be doing that till I die because we're so bad at it. Uh, but we know it can be done because the body does it. Um, so I think things, so you have to make sure that people coming into science don't just go into the bandwagons, but go into a wider area. And that's something about mentoring and changing the idea of the community, about what is success. So it comes back to this idea that citations is the important thing. You get cited more if you're in a bandwagon field, because otherwise you're in a backwater. But of course, you're more likely to do something profound in the backwater. So we have to encourage people to be working in these other areas. So maybe a metric, which is the distance to other people would be something that would be interesting. How far you are away from everybody else. We're just also, funding, surely, has got to be a big influence on this. So it's somehow to influence the sources of funding so that they don't jump on the bandwagon uh, yeah, too. But they're, but you know, they're, they're competitive as well. So if I'm sitting in uh, a particular agency, I want to have got really good uh, things out of this, and everybody else is doing you know, 2D materials, and so I better do it as well. So there's a huge pressure on those people. So you have to find some nice way to help them feel good about funding wider things as well. So that's about timelines, probably. So it's impact not in five years, but in 50 years. And normally they can't afford to do that because their career is not based on that. So lots of very interesting questions about how you intervene. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed the talk a lot. Um, what's your take on the on the issue about your Bitcoin example? What's your take on the on the issue of scientific uh, reproducibility and the the bias or perceived bias that those high end journals have to only publish the the research that gave positive results and not focus on the quote unquote failed experiments? So, so there's a big discussion in the community, and there, there are um, statistics like, so some companies, for instance, in the pharma business, they tried to replicate 100 of the top papers, the synthesis to, or the, 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 the results, and they, I think they found like 20% of them only worked, or they could get them to work, so a bit more than that. Um, which seems actually already quite reasonable for me, but if you read it from outside, that sounds terrible. In the sort of field that I'm in, the, the heart of physical sciences, I would say, I don't think there's a problem about reproducibility. I think uh, generally, anything, because there's so much supporting data that needs to be there, uh, that it's very difficult to have something that's completely fakey. There are some things that get published, but as I said, they just fall off the tree. So the stuff in the literature, my, the first-year students believe it, and by the time they're a third-year student, they go, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's flaky. So you, you sort of get some sense of it, how to read it. I think there are other areas, the biological sciences particularly, where certain parts of it are very difficult. Uh, and it's because those systems can't be controlled as well. They're, we, we, they're just very complicated systems. Um, I don't have a strong view at the moment about whether you have to change the science paradigm for that or not. I think it is progressing reasonably because it still generates new results. There is still new understanding that emerges very impressively. So if that is still going on, I don't see a need to change it. This problem about negative results, I mean, everybody knows there's lots of null results. If we published all of them, then we would be you know, 100 times the number of papers. So actually, there is something very important about not publishing things that don't work in my view, because it's about stories. If we publish the stories that actually, it's like you read the story and then halfway it went into gibble jibbledy roof and it just stopped. That would be a bit of a problem in our libraries. So 
Um, turning, turning science into stories is the right way to communicate them. Um, sometimes you want to be able to tell people that something didn't work, so we could imagine a different way of doing that, but I don't think the right thing is to actually have publications for that. So what about the mechanism of, of being truly transparent with the data? So there are some areas that's really important. So I don't know if people know, so the interesting thing is that as well as this whole idea of open access, so everything that is now published uh, in Europe very shortly is going to be available to everybody in the public. Everybody gets to see all the science that's publicly funded, which is, I think, a great idea. Uh, on the other hand, there's also something called open data, which means that all the data that's in the paper has to be also accessible to everybody. My own view is, uh, well, it was a nice idea. It's very expensive to do, and at the moment it's a complete waste of time and money. And the, so the idea was that if I've done an experiment, I've got a lot of money in my lab, I've done these great experiments, but I don't have enough time to analyze it all. If I allow everybody to look at the data, then they should be able to find a lot more. So, you know, all these scientists in India, India who aren't funded but very smart should be able to look at it and find all sorts of new things out. And it would be great, but I don't know a single example. And we've been doing this for five years now. I so can give you 15. It's possible that there's a culture that has to emerge, but I think actually we, if we want to do that, we have to train people in doing that. You, it's, you, know, you can't say it's just data. And, and actually, data doesn't mean anything without the story. Right? That's, that's my real point about it. So you have to somehow combine these together. But it's a really interesting series of questions as well. Um, other than creative anarchy that you suggested, how else do you think we can introduce, well, reintroduce biodiversity into the scientific ecosystem? It comes back to the question here. You can do some interventions. Um, so one of them I was suggesting was some other metrics. Uh, if you put in other metrics, then it starts to help this problem of who should I hire, how do I rate people, this, this sort of thing. So I, I think that's probably something that I would encourage very strongly and, and probably would lead to a lot more progress. So, I mean, really, it's only you know, 15 years since somebody came up with the H-factor and it just sort of took over like a virus in the system. People have suggested other things, but they haven't stuck. I think people know that there are problems here now. There's a, particularly, it's a problem for encouraging the diversity of scientists themselves because you only get certain sorts of scientists who might prosper into this sort of economy, but you want diversity. So you want you know, places where people can hide away and do things without that, the full glare of that. So I think that's the thing that I would say at the moment, because we are a very metric-driven, you know, we, we need somebody to measure each other. I don't know, do you have any ideas? Removing that H factor? Ah, uh, I mean, the, so there's, there's, a, there's a great a declaration of people saying, you know, H factor's terrible, don't use it. But they don't tell me how to sort 500 applications. So, they, you know, how do I decide... If, if somebody is doing good science, and I should put resources there. So as I said before, it's terribly difficult to decide with 100 million pounds, where should you put that money? Because you have far more really, really good scientists who are doing really good things, who far more money needed. So, and it's always going to be a political decision. Scientists hate politics. Often they say, I went into science to avoid politics. But of course, deciding where resources go is politics. That's exactly right. And we have to make the best decisions that we can. So you just want to use a range of factors. So if, you, know, you do have to use H-factor, in my view, um, but you have to use it with a range of other tools as well. Yeah, You can't just ban it. Thank you. Um, just the gentleman on the end here. Um, my question is about the 
political and economic structures we live in and how they affect what you might call good science. Um, if you look at the history of the space program, for example, you had the capitalist West with nukes pointed at the communist East, and somehow this morphed into a beautiful collaborative uh, space program between mm -hmm. the two kind of sets. Have you done any research on which political economic structure leads to more good science? And, uh, the, the short answer is no, um, because it's this enormous topic. Um, so if we think about the science of the period, that there is, when, I, when I was a young student, there were, after 91, there was an enormous number of Russian scientists or Eastern European scientists who were coming to the West. And, uh, uh, and also the literature opened up from their side as well. So one of the things that I would do is I'd mine their literature. I've had a Russian speaker, oh, that's, so I could try and think about ways to go forward before anybody else saw those ideas. But on the other hand, if you talk to a Russian, the general idea was, ah, yes, it was done before. Go and look at the 1960 paper in the ATP. And, uh, and so there was, and there was a lot of really, really good science that had been done that was out of contact with uh, Western science. Um, so it's clear that I think science can prosper in different uh, models. In, in that one, I would say it's because a lot of very smart people who might have gone into other areas that were more overtly political actually went into science because it had a freedom about it. As I said, freedom is really essential for it. And you, you really can't fund science without also giving it some freedom. So even in a repressive regime, if it wants to really do science, it's going to have to have some freedom associated with that as well. So you can say it's sort of, you know, um, uh, regime change happens subtly through science, which is why the Americans wanted to do it. Um, on the other hand... Uh, I think the problem is this, this thing about diversity. If we all do it the same way, then we're going to just, just miss whole areas of science. For instance, trying to understand how biological systems work, the problem is that there's so many things going on at once, we can look in all the details, but we still we miss something. We're clearly missing something. We try and map enormous numbers of things going on, but it, we need to have a whole diversity of ways of thinking about science to help with problems like that. They're not just amenable to ways that we've developed in the traditional science areas. So I would say, again, uh, trying to encourage different ways of it happening rather than a particular regime. Yeah? So Francis, so there, there are some interesting things about if you look at the, the split between the amount of science being done in, say, industry and the amount of science being done in academic institutions. Very, very big differences in different countries. Or also um, the efficiency of the science funding. One of the most amazing things is if you try and come up with some measure of uh, if you invest a pound in science, you know, how much do you get out? Britain is one of the most, I mean, it's actually the most efficient science funding country in the world. Uh, you know, there are countries that spend five times more on getting the same amount of sort of science out, sort of however you measure it, really. And so you can see two views there, that in Britain we're really good at underfunding our science system, right? <laughs> or, or if you're treasury, you say... Why would we change anything? You know, it's perfect. It's something about if you get too much money, maybe you don't look in unforeseen directions. You just buy the latest bit of kit and you do it that way. You don't think about, well, maybe we could do it this way, which is actually a traditional British strength. You know, the string in seeding wax is not that far from it. So, um, though my UK colleagues might not like it, I might say, well, it's, you know, it's not obvious that you should completely change the system um, because you don't know where you'll go when you do that. Any other questions from this bottom section before I go up the top? Yep. You mentioned that the value the journal provides to you 
is helping the best papers float to the top of the search results. That value is really provided by the peer reviewers who do that service for the journal for free. The authors provide the papers to the journal for free. The journal collects either open access fees from the author or they collect fees from the reader of the paper. So it's not actually obvious what value the journal provides. Is there a way forward without Well, the funny thing is, it is obvious what it provides, but you'll hate it, and it's brand. And it's just the same as the shops, right? I mean, I can buy the same item that's come from the same locations in China in just down around the corner here, and it will cost me 10 times more than if I buy it in a different location. And yet, a whole lot of people go and buy it over there because there's something about that brand. And now, but the brand is still doing something for me. I mean, I completely agree with you. Science publishing is known for you know, milking the system, if you like. Um, but it is actually still providing a service that is useful. It, it's not that those science publishers should do it, but somebody should do it. And it's very difficult to move the system from where it is. So I would argue this is a tax, but it's providing a useful service. And sometimes we... You know, we could try and go to another system, but we'd probably find it was worse in the long run. We'd actually be paying more money than this system, and that's not talked about very much. So they, hundreds of years ago, when this academic publishing tradition was established, they got it exactly right. Is that your assertion? No, no, it isn't. It's just that it's easy to say that the people who are making all the money out of the system are definitely, you know, it's bad. And, I, you know, it's frustrating. I completely agree with that. But it's not completely obvious to me. Well, I, mean, I, I just need those journals there. And I need some way of having a pecking order. So I, what does annoy me about this thing about, I was talking about publishing is that, that every journal has its view about what paper should look like. So whenever your paper's rejected, you have to reformat it and read all the figures and, you know, and put it into another journal. So, that, you know, completely unnecessary in some ways that they say, no, our way is best for this sort of science. Um, and, and it's hard to really argue with that. So it's possible... Uh, there is another way I could see it would happen, actually, because the competition is so strong. So what we could all do is when we submit our papers, we submit them into a pool, and now the journals can bid for your paper. Right? So it turns the thing around. So they would bid, and then you would be able to say which bidder got it right? to be able to work with. And it would just turn that around. It would, still, I mean, it would still function the same way. I don't know that the money would change, but it is a different way of doing the system, and it makes it clear that they're just competing extremely strong with, the, with each other. Uh, and, and the editors on the journals are competing with each other. So many journals will... Trying, they're trying to increase their impact factor. They'll do it anywhere they can. So they have a number of editors trying to get the best papers, and they'll rate them at the end of the year. And you know, the ones who aren't doing getting the best papers, they'll be out. So it's you know, a very, very competitive system. So you, can, you know, there's, there's editors are not talking to each other. There's no collaboration in that at all. It's terrible. I mean, my view is that it's a terrible way of trying to support people and also support science. Um, I still feel that this this esteemed tree is incredibly useful. And just losing it would be a complete disaster. So somehow, and, and it's not obvious that just replacing it, so that the peer review system still works. That's the thing about it. This, this use of reviewers who are able to comment very seriously on a paper uh, without any of that being made completely public uh, is extremely useful. There's a lot of, you can, you can get into problems, but actually it still, imp it always improves the quality of the paper. Always, always improves the quality of the paper. And so that's, that's what I want to see. So unless you have a really good idea which answers all these, then I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I'll pay my tax, just like I like doing anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, it's interesting. But 
I mean, you talked about paradigm once. I think you mentioned paradigm. Um, and I'm still concerned about how you would assess... Um, it doesn't matter what science it happens to be. I'm a social scientist, so I'm one of the fewer of the people that you talk about. How you would assess something or somebody, some new system of knowledge, which is not yet part of the peer review section and the, mm -hmm. the normal science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And from what you're saying, and I agree with you, that it'll come up to most peer reviewers and they will say, well, I don't mind what kind of science it is, really. They'll say, well, this is rubbish. You know? yep. And at some point, clearly, with, as, as with nanotechnology and so on, there had to be a breakthrough when suddenly something became acceptable. So, so, this idea of so how does it happen? Yeah, so there's an idea of paradigm change. And, and there are some areas where it does happen. And social scientists have actually studied that part of science really well. So the, the, the really classic example is this one of gravitational wave detection, which is really thought to be kooky science by most scientists for a long time. There's, there's money put into it, but, you know, it's never going to be detected. The, the signals that you're going to get incredibly small. Um, so what's interesting in that area was how do new ideas come about there? And it's more of a social construct. If somebody's very charismatic in that field, they can take a whole field with them into a particular direction. My view is that that's a very, very small amount of science. So all the science I've ever been involved in is not like that at all. Instead, the new idea, it will succeed. It depends on its utility. It will always find a place to be published. It may not make the very highest journal to start with. It'll go down. But it's if it works, if it's, if it's good science, it will get picked up and taken somewhere because people find it. So there's enough ways to find what's going on. Normally what happens is because science is so interconnected, if somebody's working on it on this part of the world there, somebody else's. Actually, there's normally about five or six people. So rarely does the discovery now come out of the blue, which is also what the terrifying thing is. So even if you're working in a backwater, you can be sure that there are 10 other groups doing that. And so all I can tell my students is, you know, uh, well, yeah, but that's also a very bad way to work as well. So it's about trying to find something. My, my, my own strategy is one where you do something in an area, but you combine it with another area. So now it becomes highly unlikely that somebody else is doing both of those. And then if you combine it with a third area, so it's a bit kooky, a bit strange, but it's really interesting, but very, very unlikely somebody's doing that. And that's how I protect young scientists who are coming up, because it's very unlikely somebody's going to do exactly the same thing. So that's my argument about trying to broaden things out. But I can do that now. Got funds to do it. But it is a problem. You know, how do you get an airing of ideas? I just think it's very, very rare that a really dramatic idea that's right will not find airtime somewhere. Uh, maybe the reverse is true. Uh, there are bad ideas that are overhyped and publicized that do get airtime that don't deserve to get airtime. But that's, the, that's also a penalty that we have in the system. You have to, that's fine. It'll evolve, it'll fall off the tree, and then the real stuff will stay because it's robust. Any other questions? So you seem to have documented how the system works really well. Um, where next? Yeah, so I, that, that, that final chapter was worrying because I had this sense that it's possible somebody could ask me to then enact all of these ideas and see what works. So I, it partly is what I, it is what I really do in, in Cambridge. Uh, every country has elite institutions. We need this range of sort of young, dynamic ones. I was in Southampton for some time. That's very much like the west coast of the States where I was for also some time, very dynamic, you know, just do it. 
When you go to an elite institution, you say, let's just do this. They go, mm, yeah. It was tried 50 years ago, and it didn't work then. And, you know. But actually, so they have to be dynamic. And so that's sort of my role, I feel, in Cambridge, is trying to encourage um, some of these different things. So, but on a, on a national scale, I think it's also important to be trying experiments. The good thing about the UK is because it has... It has quite a good structure of funding science, has a lot of good people involved in doing it, and it also does try strange experiments, uh, which, you know, it's open to doing that. I think that's very good. We, we, there's a fantastic thing going on at the moment, I don't know if people know, which is this thing called a Global Challenges Research Fund, GCRF. And the government took a huge chunk of the aid budget, which nobody was very convinced was doing something very beneficial, and said, let's try and put that into science funding, where it still has to be going to uh, a country, a developing country. So it has to really benefit the developing country, otherwise it doesn't count as aid. But the idea is to get scientists to, to work with other people in those countries to actually evolve something useful. Uh, I think it's a great experimental idea. Uh, it's you know, at least trying something different, and it's connecting. All sorts of unforeseen things come out of it. So that's what I would say is a, 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 you know, the, the thing that's good. I think that's the best thing about countries, is they can, if they can try experiments, that's a very good thing. And actually, Britain is pretty good for being able to do that, and so I think that's one of the reasons we do quite well in science. don't know if that's an answer to where's next. I'm trying not to take any responsibility. You have the as-is situation. What's your vision for where this goes? So, you know, if we were standing here in five years' time, what progress would you like to have seen? What um, difference would you like to see in So, so there's the quite a bit of work by the Royal Society and the research councils at the moment trying to look at uh, science, the, the ways of doing science. And I think there are some interventions that may come out through that. I think people, there's an appetite for realizing this whole system. I don't think most scientists do, but I think it, people know the problems. So there's an appetite for trying to do some intervention. So I think some of those things will happen. Um, I think uh, there has to be some top-down interventions as well. Uh, and I think that's on the area of metrics. I think there's, there's going to be some work. Some of that will be commissioned. So I think, I think there'll be a range of different things. And so my guess is over the next 10 or 15 years, there'll be sort of experiments in different countries trying different things. Um, the difficulty is, in, like I said, in Britain, I think one of the things that we do very well is that we actually do collaborative science very well because we haven't set up this incredible... It's not quite as competitive here. So nanoscience is actually doing really well here. It'd be hard to do what I'm doing in the US because... There'd always be this question, when I'm collaborating with somebody else, so is it my work or is it their work? Yeah, and we don't ask that question here. It's just really good science and technology. It's just what we should be doing. Just China also, there's that sense of, is it mine or is it yours? We have to divide it. And it's, you know. um, so I think um, you know, we have some opportunities in it to see how different countries play this. But at the same time, if, if the UK is being very nice, we're very collaborative, but everybody else does everything first... That's, that's going to be hard to make changes. Yeah, that's probably... Uh, awesome. I think this... this well, no, the other thing is I'm really trying... I'm actually trying to actively uh, encourage some work in this area of AI and big data on science. Because it feels to me there's lots of work on, you know, things that you can monetize and, uh, you know, the data from our phones and everything like that. But actually all it is is to push advertising to you. 
So in the science sphere, that's not what would happen. It's actually a much more efficient way of doing science, and it would identify some more of these other areas and would stop us concentrating just on bandwagons. So I really think we should do that, and it should be a, like a big challenge. It's a, it's a difficult project, but it actually is one that's tenable now, so I'm trying to raise the incentive to do that. Okay, so we have time for one more question, if there is one. Uh, apologies if you gave this answer already, but uh, you asked us at the beginning to guess how many scientists there are, and I don't think you actually told us no, the answer. No, 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 you see, that's why I've, I've, I'm very naive. So when I wrote my book, I, I told everybody everything. And now I always keep at least one number back. So that's the number I'm going to keep back. <laughs> Good question. No, we know actually it's the one number that we know probably better than any other number, I would say. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for coming for uh, this evening's talk. Uh, but a round of applause, please, for Jeremy. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>